When we think of professional athletes, we imagine the fearless performers on giant fields filled with determination and lacking any self-doubt. But they are people just like you and me, with many experiencing mental challenges which impact their performance. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Michael Seeley. Michael is a licensed psychotherapist working primarily with athletes to help them metaphorically overcome their hurdles. Mix a couple decades of experience in that with his past as an Olympic-level athlete, and you get someone who understands the mindset thoroughly. We talk about lots of interesting ways to confront performance issues that I've never heard of. Michael is also a new listener to the show, as we mention a little. If you want to be like Mike, talking about your passions on this show, email dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com. But now, let's turn that fear into fuel. Welcome to the show, Michael Seeley. Colton, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. Why don't you introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah, so my name is Michael Seeley. Um, my last name is spelled C-E-E-L-Y. Pretty unique spelling. I actually found out that um, related to pretty much anyone who has that spelling. So that was kind of interesting. That is neat. <laughs> um, yeah, so I am a mindset coach for athletes. I'm also a licensed psychotherapist. So in my business, it's kind of two-pronged. If I meet with a potential client, I decide whether, you know, psychotherapy is, would be more helpful or if the person's ready for what I call mindset coaching, which is also synonymous with sports psychology, which is also synonymous with mental performance coaching. But I don't use those titles because those titles require special degrees. You have to, to be a psychologist, you have to have a PhD. And I have a master's degree in counseling psychology. So my background really is in psychotherapy. And I found that a lot of athletes were coming to me because of my website, because I'm very athletic, have a background in sports. I used to be a competitive cyclist, uh, went to the Olympic trials a couple of times, was very, very serious about it. And so I had naturally had more and more athletes coming to me. So I said, well, some of these people coming to me don't necessarily need psychotherapy. Um, they need more of the mental performance coaching. And then some, yeah, psychotherapy would be helpful. So it's kind of like a, a two-pronged uh, business, depending on what the, the athlete needs. That's, that's what I do. Uh, I love it. And, um, doesn't feel like work to me. Yeah. And isn't that awesome? I mean, number one, congratulations on the, like even trying out for the Olympics, because that is a level of athleticism and like just an overall experience that a very, very small fraction of a percentage of people ever get even close to. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting, like one, when I was doing it, my mindset was, you know, just being really hard on myself. Like, I can't believe I didn't, you know, get the top 10 or something like that. And then when you, when you say that, it's always a nice reminder. And that's a good thing for athletes to hear. It's because athletes are notoriously very, very hard on themselves. And which can be helpful, kind of pushes them. But for some athletes, it can almost be like their inner bully and they kind of beat up on themselves. So that's definitely something that I deal with when I work with athletes. Yeah. Well, and it's something uh, I want to ask you about eventually, but yeah. I want to kind of hear like, what drew you to this field? 
Like where, how did you get here? Yeah. Right. So, um, so I trace it back to when I was 15 years old. Um, my parents were getting divorced and my sort of escape was bicycling. I'd go out and ride for, you know, three, four hours and I started getting into bike racing and starting to get pretty good at it. And so my, my parents uh, sent me to a therapist, like, Hey, you need therapy. Right. <laughs> so I was very resistant. So I don't need therapy. And fortunately my therapist was, was amazing. This guy named Gary. And he worked on like what I alluded to kind of like the repair work, like stuff that needed to be kind of, repaired and processed and stuff like that. And then we got to a point where I was doing pretty well and he started talking about bike racing and, and really pushing me, but not, not in the way, more of like an internal kind of leveraging as opposed to the outside motivation pushing. And I think that was such a, such an important factor in my bike racing that really propelled me to do much, much better. And in fact, I remember the particular session, which I think planted a seed for later to maybe get me into this field was I was starting to do pretty well in racing. And um, I was kind of bragging to him, hoping for some praise. And he did this sort of mocking clap like this. It's kind of a very old school guy. <laughs> and he'd use these sort of uh, these provocative techniques and I was kind of mad at him. Like, why is this guy mocking me? And he's like, well, why didn't you win? Which is wouldn't, you wouldn't think a therapist would say something like that. Right. Yeah. You <laughs> think they're like, like on your side. <laughs> right. Right. But it's more like he knew, I mean, in retrospect, I, I can see this now at the time I didn't quite see it, but he knew that I was really loved bike racing and it was really important to me. And it was a, you know, at that age, people are developing their identities and things like that. So he, he knew that I was like good enough to hear that, I think. And after that, my results got so much better. It's like, you know, why didn't you win? You, you can, like, why don't you try harder basically? And um, that was really the catalyst for doing much better in my sport. And I decided to pursue it professionally. Like, Hey, I really want to just do this. And I didn't go to college until I was 25. So you know, I basically tried to, to make a living at it for a while. Um, but I think that was the, the seed that was planted early on was just the power of psychology and the power of working with somebody, either a therapist or a coach that can really listen and get those, that outside vision of what's going on with you and have the training and skills and just say magic phrases like that and things. And so, yeah, I, did, I didn't really realize that particular therapy session was the catalyst until I was in grad school. Um, so yeah, so basically in a nutshell, I was bike racing until I was about age 24, 25, uh, went to college, became a high school Spanish teacher. So that was a big shift. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love, I love languages always, always have. And so that was more of like a practical thing. Let me just do it, something practical. You know, I liked it, but I found myself really drawn to kids who were underperforming um, academically but who I could see had potential. And so I'd spend more time with them. And I got curious about psychology and ended up going to grad school, getting a counseling psychology degree. And then, um, and like I said, started getting more athletes were kind of coming my way. So that's really the whole trajectory, but it started with that, that therapist when I was 15. Yeah. I mean, that's like kind of a cool origin story of you, like turning into 
you know, taking on what he taught you and what you had learned who you were up to that point and then like applying it forward. I think so. Yeah. So yeah, it's just, just the power of really people working together and um, having somebody, somebody believe in you, you know, is, is really important. And that gets into, you know, into coaching too, which is a whole nother aspect of sports psychology. But um, you know, what, what I really like to do is, is see if an athlete is, is ready for being pushed like that. You know, if they need the repair work first or if they're ready to be really, really pushed. So it's, it's, it's finding that, that balance, like does this person need to be nurtured a bit or are they ready to be, to really be pushed? And I think that is kind of the art of any kind of coaching or parenting for that matter, like anything where you're kind of in a mentor position or a teacher position is does the person need to be pushed or do they need some more nurturing? Well, it sounds like it could be a very fine line yeah. where you're like, oh, I think they need to be pushed, but really they're kind of like holding back and reserving like, oh, I'm not, I'm not really ready. Right. That seems like it would be quite challenging to see that in some people, you know, if they're hiding it well. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's, it's, it's really, um, you know, the more and more experience you get, the more you're able to kind of read somebody's um, disposition or their temperament. Like there was this, um, this temperament study. So this is like a psychological term temperament, right? This basically means kind of like, yeah, like you've seen little kids who are just super energetic and some kids who are a little more chill. It's your basic disposition. There was this study done, um, gosh, it was in London. I can't remember the university but it was um, a longitudinal study, I think over like 30 years or 20 years or something like that, where, and it was a large sample of babies where they, psychologists kind of read their disposition or temperament, um, you know, at like a week after birth and predicted with, I think like 70 to 80% accuracy personality traits later on in life, just from you know, having that knowledge of like kind of reading the baby's reactions. And, and I, I thought that was really fascinating of like, there's, there is a lot of just hard wiring. It doesn't mean you can't change or, but there's like, there's a range, right? So some people I think need more of that nurturing. Some are like, Hey, let's go. Um, and that gets into how people manage anxiety, depending on their disposition, if they're prone to depression I'm careful in just saying that because I really believe that people, people can change and adapt and develop skills, but there is also that biological part where you got to go, okay, there's a history of say uh, depression and anxiety in my family. That's interesting. There might be a biological component. doesn't mean that I have to experience that, but it means like, you know, when I'm meeting with a, with an athlete, I, I ask a ton of questions on the first session. So really, you know, asking about family, asking about how things are going in other parts of their life. Um, because if we jump straight to performance, you know, we could be missing some things. Um, so I think just getting a really robust assessment on the athlete before you work with them is, is super important. So, yeah. Do you see... I don't know if it was different initially and it has kind of changed over time, but did you see a lot more of like a specific type of athlete or 
you know, uh, a level of athlete or even a gender of athlete that was coming to you more often than others? Generally, um, males were coming to me just because I'm a guy. I guess, you know, there's some resonance there. Um, so generally speaking, it was is athletes who had anxiety, which is really interesting because I don't really advertise that on my website, but that was my big issue when I was bike racing, was managing anxiety. So maybe they could just, I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, that was like the main, the main issue. It's like, like, Hey, you know, I was performing so well, but now I'm super nervous. I'm questioning myself. I got this really negative self-talk. Um, and then there's the other end of the spectrum athletes who are kind of in a slump and just a little bit depressed and unmotivated. So they're like underactivated. Whereas the other athletes that were kind of attracted to me were more overactivated. So that's, for some reason they they're drawn to me that way. Yeah. It's just magnetism. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. But um, no, I remember really suffering in when I, in my cycling career um, it was after the, the second Olympic trials I participated in, I think I'd gotten uh, like 30th place um, or 33rd or something like that. And I was, I was really bummed out and got, and, and prior, it was interesting prior to that, I had a lot of, just anxiety problem management, get really nervous before races. And then after that, I kind of went into a slump. So I've, I've experienced all the issues really that athletes go through firsthand. So I know what it feels like and I know, I know how to get out of it. Um, but uh, yeah, this is anxiety is interesting and it does get into wiring because there's definitely, I think in my family, some, some anxiety issues. Um for me, it was a lot of um, like physiological agitation before competitions. And the thing that's great about bike racing or any really intense athletic sport is that stuff will get burned off really quickly. <laughs> Whereas in say golf or baseball, if you're dealing with physiological anxiety activation, it doesn't burn off. Maybe you have to chew tobacco in the dugout or something to get rid of that or like, so the more intensely athletic the sport is kind of the less um, problems with psychology, generally, generally speaking. Um, so for me, luckily I was in a sport where I could burn off my anxiety pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you just literally run out of the energy to deal with it. Yeah. You're like right? that's, that's gone because I can't, I can't yeah. even address it right now. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I, I'm in a calorie deficit of about 3000 and I need to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it, recently I've been, I've been on this sort of trip of thinking about the human body as, uh, you know, back on, back when we were hunter gatherers, kind of like our human bodies are the standard issue version, you know, 1.0 or whatever it is, um, homo sapien issue. And we're anxiety and depression, all, all these feelings serve, served a purpose back then. So that if uh, someone was feeling a little down, the, the clan or the tribe would get around this person and help lift them up. Um, that doesn't happen as much these days, unfortunately, although people are out there to help. Um, and anxiety back then was a signal for action. So if you're feeling anxious about getting attacked by a tiger, right, you, you literally do something about it. You climb a tree, right? 
And you're, once you're up in the tree, like, eh, no more anxiety. So was, anxiety back then was really action signal and action solution. And in modern society, it's like you can be feeling anxious, be like, wait, where's the tiger, right? And the tiger might be for athletes, my worries about upcoming competition. Or if you're not an athlete, the tiger might be, you know, um, my boss at work or the conversation I have to have with my spouse or whatever. So I've been really into this trip of looking at, say, you are not your brain. You are not your body. You are you housed in a vessel, almost like a, like a issue of a car or something like that. And how do you drive this vehicle? Um, and I've been using this kind of philosophical discussion with some of my athletes, and it's really resonating. I think because you can get into a lot of self-blame of like, why am I nervous before my competitions? I should be able to be calm or why am I burned out? I shouldn't be. And then if you remind yourself that you have this vehicle that you're in, that is meant to be essentially designed to be a hunter gatherer in a small tribe of people. Right. And you go, Oh, well, this is, I, this is all I got. I got a Toyota. I don't have a Ferrari. Right. <laughs> let me, let me figure out how to like modify this or tweak it or tune it as best as possible. So anyway, I don't know how it got off on that tangent, but that's what I've been into lately. No, I like it. I think it's very interesting because you could almost draw a line and I don't know if they work the same way between when you're saying like, well, this is the tribe, right? And mm -hmm. the tribe helps each other. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're a, you know, a high performing athlete, if you're in a team-based sport, like you do have a tribe yeah. and I don't know if they, if they like just innately function the same way because you're around each other so much, you kind of start to support each other or, you know, how that, how that all works out. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. I mean, it's, it very much mirrors sort of the, the, the tribe. So if you have a, a athletic team, there is a culture or a vibe to that team. And there is certainly a tendency if someone's a little down, maybe to help that, that athlete. However, it does really come down to leadership. And this is something um, I haven't worked with a lot of sports teams, a couple teams, um, but the work I did with some of the sports teams, baseball teams, was noticing sort of the leader setting the tone. So analogous to maybe a hunter-gatherer tribe, there's probably a leader or a couple of leaders generally. I'm guessing I wasn't living back then, but I'm just trying, trying to imagine. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so it's kind of like, does the leader set a hopeful tone? Is the leader critical of individuals? You know, what's the focus of the leader? Because we're humans are really mirrored to emulate. We emulate behaviors. You know, you can read a lot of books, but in, in, in the end, it's kind of like the behaviors that you emulate. Uh, so so a coach's role or a team director's role is super, super important in setting that tone. Like, is it, is it okay to speak up or is it one of these old school coaches like Bobby Knight who throws a chair and has a tantrum and, you know, yells at his players. Like that only goes so far. And I mean, it works too sometimes, which is interesting. So if the bottom line is sport performance, am I getting more performance out of my athletes? Sure, maybe, but you might be burning them out. So it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, the, the, the goal of, say, sports psychology, bottom line is athletic performance, right? But in my background and training, I think it's 
also very important to have a the whole human like what are you going to do after your sport right are you going to maybe be so you love the sport still so much you want to give back to it like more of the bigger the bigger picture um so yeah i don't know again where i was going with that but um i'm, I'm liking this podcast so far because we're going off on a couple of tangents here so yeah i mean i think it's fun this is kind of just like the flow of the podcast is wherever it takes you and whatever you get into because I just yeah. keep thinking of things like as you're talking and you're like, yeah, it comes down to the leader and the leader sets this tone, even if no one else sees it that way. Because yeah. if the, you know, the captain of the team just says, you know, somebody's down and they say, look, just leave him be, he's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. Then yeah. everyone else kind of like, oh, well, leader says we don't have to talk to him. So no one ends up talking to him. Right. And that just like, then they carry that over because they're like, oh, well, last time this happened, the leader said, don't worry about it. So now, right. now you've got like a cascading problem, yeah, which, you know, could set a, a real problem in the team. Yeah. Yeah. It is really leading by, by example. Um, so I don't know. Do you have any particular sports that you, that you follow or you're interested in? Um, I'm kind of the, the casual sport fan yeah. where like i can get into anything kind of come and go um yeah. i mean i'm in oregon so we have a we're very big on soccer up here yeah. Yeah. um we've got a couple of good college football teams mm -hmm. generally yeah <laughs> they have some <laughs> off years like currently yeah. i think they're just getting washed out but uh yeah you know we, we've got a couple couple popular teams up here yeah yeah so before, um, I'm currently in uh, in Naples, Florida. I moved here a couple of years ago, but I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area for quite a long time. And so I'm a, a big uh, Golden State Warriors basketball fan. And uh, there's this uh, there's this new show out um, with one of the players. And I forget the name of the show, but the player's name is Draymond Green. And he's known for very, very aggressive basketball playing and known to kind of kind of lose his cool, blow his stack and like, get basically followed out of, of big games and he's in therapy now and it's all this is a show about it's super it's super interesting where he's they're they're drilling in really deep about like where the anger comes from and things like that and it's, it's making me think about how there's more and more like really high profile athletes really just sort of being honest and transparent and kind of exposing their story um there's another, um, the San Francisco 49ers, the famous quarterback, Steve Young. He had uh, published a book a couple years ago about his really debilitating anxiety. I don't know if you knew about this, but he apparently he would get so nervous before football games that he wouldn't sleep for a couple of days and like have dry heaves and throw up and like super intense anxiety. And he was still able to play at that level. Um, yeah, I remember hearing. So the book is called, I think, um, Behind the Spiral or Beyond the Spiral. And it's, it's, it's a great book. And in, yeah, there's more and more talk about just mental health and athletes um, and just mental health in general, which is, which is great. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy to be doing what I'm doing because there is more and more awareness of it and more and more athletes wanting to to get help, not just about performance, but like, Hey, I need some, some repair work here. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think you could, you can have both, right? Like you can have long-term things you need to deal with that have just been sitting under the surface as well as like, Oh, new things that came up since I became a top performer. Yeah. Like you can have both. It doesn't have to be one or the other, but we do get to see, at least lately, we've seen a lot of athletes say like, look, my mental health is really important to me and I don't want to take part in whatever this particular thing is because, yeah. you know, I'm trying to take care of myself. Yeah. Um, so I think it's becoming far more socially acceptable, you know, for, for us to see athletes do that. Yeah. I know if you remember in the, the summer Olympics, the Tokyo Olympics, um, Simone Biles, the gymnast. Yep. She was really criticized for, for dropping out. Um, and that was, that was interesting because I was, you know, I was talking with some people about that. There were people that I knew and respect were kind of being hard on her and saying like, you know, that's, that's not setting a good example. Like she's making up excuses. And I was more on the side of like, well, look, gymnastics is a dangerous sport. Like if you land wrong, I mean, you can break your neck. And she had this thing called, uh, it's called the twisties in gymnastics where you, you literally feel like disoriented in vertigo. And that was, I think, triggered by a lot of anxiety. So I think she was right to drop out. And it also brought a lot of awareness too, to athletes, mental health. They're not these, these super people. Um, so I'm, I'm glad we're talking about it. Well, and I think, you know, most of us, we get to see these athletes, right? We're constantly yeah. publicized all over different news agencies, channels, whatever it might be. We get to see them a lot. What we don't see is their perspective of a million eyes staring at them because that has got to be a pressure I can't imagine where it's just like, how many people can you fill a, a stadium with that are all just staring at a, specifically you? Mm -hmm. in that moment like that pressure has to be so immeasurable that i can't imagine you want to just keep doing it like hey we've got you know a big interview panel before the game and now mm -hmm. we have the game and now we're going to do post game stuff i'd be like i, I am losing my mind <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's something i work with uh athletes that I, that I work with is um is that pressure of being on stage right? Being all these eyes watching you. And there's this natural human tendency to, to, to be kind of to shrink, if you will, like, Hey, I want to, I don't want the eyes on me, or I can't wait till this is over, or kind of being overwhelmed by the attention. And I, th I think the way a lot of athletes and just people in, in general work with that is trying to get through it. Like, let me just get through this or um, this is this is something I have to put out of my mind. And when I work with athletes, I say, how can you use that? How can you flip it as a strength? Okay, I wish there were more people watching. Kind of that expansive approach. And not because, say, I'm so great, but like, how can I inspire people? Even if I mess up and show sportsmanship and, and, and grace, like that's also helping people. So I, I focus on a lot of the athlete getting out of their uh, small performance bubble and having it just be about themselves and being watched as opposed to I'm giving and, and emanating this message to all of you of how you can be, you can improve in your life or you can shine. 
Um, and so some, sometimes just flipping that, like, yeah, I want more news conferences. I want 10,000 people so that I can inspire them. Um, there's this, this quote uh, by Joe DiMaggio, a baseball player way back when uh, they, because uh, he, he, was, he was consistent, he was generally all, always motivated. And I think a reporter asked him, you know, like, how do you stay so motivated? And he's like, I think about every time I get up to bat, that there's a kid watching me, an aspiring young baseball player, and I do it for that kid. It's like, wow, that's that's super interesting. Because now, now it's less about you and performance and screwing up and more about like, how can I inspire people who are watching me? And if, you, if the athlete can get past the, I have to do good to impress these people and more toward like, no matter what I do, um, people are going to be inspired in, in victory and defeat, you know, if I'm, if I'm graceful about it. Yeah. It's a very interesting way to like, you know, flip the expectation because mm-hmm. anyone that's ever had to give like a public speech is yeah. like, Oh, I'm terrified because people are watching me. Yeah. But you know, one of the first things that I think most people are told is like, yes, they're all here to watch you. Like that's how important you are in this peace in this moment in time literally everyone is here for you mm-hmm. so like take that and utilize that because who knows when you get this chance again right right that's i mean that's one way to look at it if they're all here for you it could also be that they're there for them sure. meaning you know i want to get inspired uh, maybe i'm interested in this you know when i was in uh, in graduate school for counseling psychology i decided to really challenge myself and do the scariest thing I could possibly do, which you would think would be, you know, some sort of sport, but I decided to do improv acting on stage. <laughs> and it was a trip. It was probably the, the best self-development I've ever done because it is extreme anxiety. And, and again, my, my, historically, my problem was with my anxiety. And what I found was uh, if I pushed, if I leaned into it and utilized it, that was really the cure. Like that was the, the action signal. So I, I decided to do improv acting at this, uh, this theater in um, Oakland, California. Um, and uh, it was great. Um, I, I just really understood the, the feeling of being, of like inspiring a crowd and, have, and having teammates. So I worked you know, with a troupe and just, it was, it was magical. And it was a lot like sports. Um, but in an example where like there was no script <laughs> yeah. and we had to work together to create something. Um, so I, I think that, you know, for athletes or really for any of us, if you do that scariest thing, you know, as long as it's not too dangerous, like wingsuit diving out of an airplane, maybe don't start there, <laughs> but, uh, but doing that, that thing that's you know not going to kill you, but it's really anxiety provoking. And maybe working with a coach or diving right in, if you can survive it, like the, the fear is, is gone after that. Um, so I, I think more people who can do those, those scary things that maybe excite them, the better off we'll be. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of one of those, I mean, first of all, uh, improv acting is terrifying. I think to me specifically, because there's no way to plan your way out of it. Like you cannot plan for success because there is no plan. 
other than like, we're going to go out there. We're going to work together on something and hopefully it works out. Right. <laughs> like you can't do anything more to avoid anything like that. But um, I think the other one is like, you know, doing something scary or doing something uncomfortable. You know, if you yeah. do that every day, eventually you just start running out of stuff that makes you uncomfortable. Like you right. just are a more resilient person now. Yeah. Yeah, really. It's, it's interesting. Once you start doing the activity, like the anxiety goes away generally, unless, I mean, the examples I mentioned earlier, like golf and baseball, where you're having breaks. And so it's like little bursts of performance. So each one is a different kind of thing. But once you're doing, once you're actually doing it, the anxiety goes away. This made me think of um, this guy who recently a couple of years ago, jumped out of the stratosphere all the way to Earth. It was the the highest skydive ever. Did you hear about this? Yeah, I think he was. Um, he was the Red Bull sponsored one, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I yeah. remember seeing the video of it. Yeah, there was, that was well, this, a really yeah. crazy story. Yeah, it was really crazy. He broke the sound barrier too on the way down. So I'm just thinking of like the scariest thing you could do. That would probably be it <laughs> if I can think of things. Um, but what's interesting about that, I don't know if you knew this, but he had a he was working with a sports psychologist. And um, this, is a, this is a guy that, that I respect because he has a lot of experience. His name is Michael Gervais. Um, and he worked with Felix Baumgartner, which is the guy who jumped out of this hot air balloon. And the coaching and everything was going really well, except Felix, the, the jumper, freaked out like a week before. And started having panic attacks and anxiety. And it's like the sports psychologist, Michael Gervais, was like, oh crap, things were going so well. <laughs> now what? Right. And he really worked with uh with Felix and got him totally focused. And the dive, you know, obviously went well. Um, and that's a great story that's on YouTube. You can look it up of just how a sports psychologist meets a challenge with one of his clients when things are basically going well, and then they just turn for the worst. And, and how can you get the athlete focused? And how, if you know the athlete well enough, like what are the things to say to get them focused? Cause legitimately jumping out of the stratosphere, like, yeah, yeah. You might be scared, right? Yeah. You definitely, I would definitely be scared. I think most people would. And like, he definitely had the, the right to have some, some anxiety about it. Uh, I know, and yeah. I listened to part of his story somewhere and he had mm -hmm. said like, there was a couple of times where he started to rotate, like to spin yeah. while he was falling. And they're like, you have to correct it immediately because if you don't like the speed you're moving, your all the blood will leave your body, like to your extremities essentially. And you'll just black out like, and at that point, like, you're not going to pull your chute. You're not going to slow down. You have no blood going to your brain. Like that's a that like somebody giving me that explanation would send me into a, a panic attack like hold on what if i start to spin at all while i'm falling to earth uh i think it might happen yeah yeah there's a and again the, the youtube video they it's is live and you can hear um him being coached through the spin and being told to kind of like to chill out and relax um Makes me think there's this other movie called Free Solo. Did you, have you watched this? I haven't watched it, but I feel like I have heard of it. 
Yeah, it's this, this guy who climbs, free climbs El Capitan in, in Yosemite National Park, California, and basically does it without any ropes, everything. It's a 3,000-foot climb. And there's some psychology there, too, right? So, Yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah. So you, you get into, like, the extreme sports, and that's when you can really, really see where the psychology comes into play. Um, and what's interesting about him, I'm trying to remember his name, is, is Alex Har Harmo. forget his name, but um, I, I believe they did like a brain scan on, on him and noticed that his, his limbic system is not as, as, as active as most people, which is really interesting because the limbic system will produce that, that adrenaline, the anxiety and all that, so that his actual perception of fear and anxiety is was ticked down lower than most people. Which, I, mean, I guess probably like gets you to chase that high a little more. Yeah. Right. It might get you to chase the high more and it would also be um, advantageous so that you don't panic, but also maybe not because you might take a risk that most people wouldn't take because there is that the fear that's missing. Yeah. I wonder if he was always like he always just kind of had a poor limbic response or if that was something that developed as like a protection mechanism or his yeah. body's like you have got to produce less of this <laughs> yeah i don't know that would be that'd be interesting to find out um i it makes me think uh i so i have my own podcast as well and i told this the story of when i was a uh, free free solo rock climbing this is in, in berkeley california and i got I had my first like moment of panic ever when I was halfway up this rock. And it was, it's interesting to analyze now. <laughs> of, uh, it got me thinking about this idea of, of leaning again, leaning into the anxiety instead of shrinking away, really leaning into it. And so I was halfway up this rock and I was inspired to do it. Cause I was getting into rock climbing and I saw this like, this kid, like a middle school kid in basketball shoes and street clothes, just scurry right up this rock. I'm like, oh, I got it. I'd never tried this rock. So I got about halfway up and I was like, oh crap. Like, I don't know where to go. <laughs> and I didn't, I couldn't see the holds or anything. And I was high enough up that if I would have fallen, I might've broke my back or died. Like it was, it was high. And so I was freaking out. And um, in that moment, what I said to myself, like my inner self talk was like, breathe. That was the first thing that I thought of was just breathe because that is the, the expansion. Like if, if I'm short breathing, short breath, that's more shrinking. Uh, there's no solution there. Let me just kind of take a deep breath that calmed me. And then I looked down and I noticed there was other uh, rock climbers noticing that I was in trouble and they coached me. It was amazing. They were so calm and they just assured me, like, you, you go that way, go left, go that way. And um, I got to the top. And it was one of those, again, one of those experiences where you're like, okay, I did that. <laughs> um, probably not going to do it again. But it was, <laughs> it was this thing of like, when I'm feeling shut down and anxious and overwhelmed, you want to first calm yourself. And then, unfortunately, I don't know if I would have made it if it wouldn't have been for those rock climbers below. They were like my coaches. 
because they're saying you need to go up. And I was like, no, no, I want to come down. They said, no, dude, you can't come down because like, it doesn't work that way. You got to keep going up. And uh, yeah, so I mean, the metaphor there too, right? You have to make it to the top once you're halfway. Uh, That was a great experience. I won't repeat it, but um, it's it's the attitude that I bring to working with athletes is, you know, uh, leaning into the anxiety, leaning into the fear of being in front of an audience uh, or whatever it is that if you expand, you're going to feel so much better than contracting and giving in and tapping out of the anxiety. Or if you're, if you're in a slump, right, you got you want to lean into what's causing it and get back out there and just get that momentum going again. It's really, it's all about momentum, really. Yeah. It was something that kind of struck me while you were talking and you said like, you know, I told myself just breathe. Mm-hmm. And the immediate thought in my head was like, yeah, that should be our go-to. Like, what's the worst that could happen? If I do this thing, what's the worst that could happen? Like, oh, take a deep breath. All right. What's the worst that happens? I breathe better. Yeah. All right. Nothing to lose. Why shouldn't I do it? Like, take a deep breath. Oh, I feel a little better. Now let's, let's look around. Like, what's the worst that happens if I look around? Nothing. Like, I'm going to take in more data. Then like you saw other climbers it's like, okay, well, you know, what's the, you know, you just like keep moving down that pathway and it's like, well, they're not going to, you know, do something that's going to get me injured. So like, obviously whatever they're doing is for the better. Like I I should just listen to them and you just kind of like, you know, not only use that, that fear or that anxiety or whatever it is to fuel you, but like, you can just legitimately look at it like, okay worst case scenario is still better than what I'm doing now. Like just moving at all is better than just sitting here. Right. Right. And it was, for me, it was instinctive. Like why did I decide in that moment to breathe? And I think it's because I had heard somewhere back in my memory that if you take like a deep nose breath, just like that, it instantly within like five seconds calms you and activates different, different hormones and, and neutralizes some cortisol. Like it's, it's very powerful. Um, so yeah, uh, athletes can be very instinctive, but at the same time, it's like you are housed in this, this old vessel hunter gatherer vessel vessel. So it's like, uh, sometimes you have to subvert, go through the, the instincts, right? So this dance between like your logical brain and some of these, these signals you're getting like these sort of archaic signals and just synthesizing that and and coming up with, with a decision. So I find it super fascinating, just the the human body and brain and and people's desires to grow and just figuring out what that, what that puzzle is, especially for the athlete. And um, it's, it's almost like uh, it's almost like an artist who wants, wants to develop and grow and achieve and and produce something or create something so really it's, it's like it's like your podcast too like you're a creator like you could not you could keep your voice to yourself right if you wanted but you don't and i was listening to one of your episodes and i was really getting into it so it's like do you want to be a creator or do you want to be just kind of sitting back playing it safe right and that's what my therapist said to me when i was 15 he said you're playing it safe. And I was like, whoa, what do you mean? It's like, you're playing it safe. 
you're holding your cards. You're not playing your cards. It's like, what's the worst that could happen? It's not, you're not going to get eaten by a tiger, right? You're just the worst that could happen in the modern days. You're going to be embarrassed or whatever one or two people might judge you or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really about um, not playing it safe, getting out there and, and being, being a creator, I think is whatever sports life in general I think people are happy when they're, when they're creating something. Yeah. I mean, you gotta do what makes you feel, you know, alive and fulfilled and, you know, like a, a functional human and not like a robot that just does things for the sake of needing to do them. Um, I was talking to Kevin Palmieri a couple weeks back. Um, I did an episode with him and that was one of those things that he talked about as he said, like, the last five years of my life have been the hardest hands down far none, not even close, but they've also been the most fulfilling years of his life. So he's like, despite struggling, despite, you know, being broker than I've ever been in my life. Like I still felt better because I was, you know, chasing what made me feel like me mm-hmm. instead of just like doing the thing I was expected to do, which was, having a job that paid really well and, you know, just maintaining the the image. Yeah. It's, it's about taking those, those risks. And if it, if it feels good to create, you know, do it. And I think, I think everyone has that thing that they want to be a creator in, right. It could be your job. It could be your family. It doesn't matter. Right. It's kind of like whatever, whatever lights you up. I, I would encourage, encourage people to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So how often do you usually see people like they come to you and they say like, look, I have a lot of problems with, you know, performance anxiety or, you know, something like that. How often should they be, you know, trying to, to find someone to like coach them through it? Yeah, typically it's, it's weekly. That's kind of the, the model. Um, it, it depends. Sometimes an athlete will come to see me kind of in, in crisis, like, Hey, I have this competition next you know next week and i'm freaked out about it it's like well let's meet every day right <laughs> whatever it takes but if it's uh if it's a typical thing where it's kind of like hey my performance is down i'm not sure what to do you know weekly iteration is pretty good because you can um, give the athlete some homework and assignments in between things to test out say in their sport a little experiments and then get feedback and then process that at the next session so that usually takes you know you know, a week to, to have that implemented. So it's typically, it's, it's weekly. It's um, we set goals right away up front on the first session. So I'm always cognizant of like, how close are they getting to their goals? And I'll even ask them each session, how close are you percentage wise to meeting your goal? What do you feel? Really a lot of measurement of progress. Um, so depending on the, you know, severity, what they're, they're dealing with, it could be anywhere from like one or two sessions up to, you know, a year, really, it's kind of like what they want to achieve. They might meet a goal and go, well, I really like this. I want to work on these other things. Great. Whatever you want to do, let's, let's work on it. Um, so it, it just, it depends on the case really. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I can see, you know, having like people need long-term counseling because they have long-term problems versus like you said, I got a thing next week or two weeks from now. How does every day sound? And you're like, sounds intensive, but it also sounds like that's what you need. 
Yeah, it's, it's whatever the athlete really needs. Um, you know, and, and sometimes what I'll do is I'll really, again, it's about really the, the first assessment, like what's really going on with this athlete. And I might prescribe homework that has nothing to do with the sport. So it could be that there's some family issues and they have that conversation with their brother or uncle or mom or something. And in doing that, that's like the getting on stage, like they do the scariest thing. And then the anxiety goes away. So it's like, oh, the anxiety was coming from a family problem and not really your sport, you know? So it, it depends on what's going on for them. And then assigning the right tasks between sessions, that's going to give them the, the best, fastest progress. Yeah. It's very much like you're doing psychology with an athlete and it's just unrelated to an athletic problem. Like it's a psychology yeah. problem and that's right. half the equation, right? Right. Right. And just knowing how to be able to read that. And then there's also some athletes who just don't want to go there. They don't, don't want to go deep. They'll say, Hey dude, just, I want to perform better. Like, okay, here's some band-aids, you know, here, this, this will, this will probably work. And I'll just be transparent. Like, yeah, you know, it might work for a while and maybe it'll work forever. I don't know, but you know, here's where I'd like us to go, but yeah, we don't have to go there. Um, there are athletes I won't work with too. Like if it's someone's got like a really bad substance use problem, um, I'm, I'll just be honest, like, Hey, you know, here's some good substance abuse counselors in your area. I encourage you to take care of that. Um, someone who's going maybe some severe, like going through a divorce or something like that. There's some things I think that, are, you know, farm out to a specialist that someone could help them best. So. Well, sure. I think that's, I think that's reasonable and probably very responsible to do because uh, you could just be the guy that's like, yep, I take all clients no matter what. And I just throw advice at them until something works. Right. Like, or, you know, you could be the responsible professional that realizes like, look, I am not a substance abuse coach. I don't yeah. have a history with substance abuse that I can lean on. Like, I really think you should see someone that specializes in this because they're going to help you more than me. Uh, I think that is more of a giving attitude than most people really like put out there. Like they're just like, Oh, well, this is my job and I'm just going to keep doing it regardless. Instead yeah. of like, how about we take care of each other a little bit here? Yeah. It is so much, you know, uh, client, uh, coach match. It's, it's a really a big thing. Um, so if people who have had maybe bad experiences with in therapy or with a bad coach in like little league or something like that, there's, there's plenty of good folks out there and it's really, it's about match really. I mean, there's some athletes who respond well to being berated, <laughs> like, honestly, like if that works for you, you know? Um, so it's, it's really about match and, like you said, if, if it's not a good match, be a professional and, and point them in the right direction just to, to someone who's going to work for them. Yeah. Like you said, sometimes yeah. you need a coach that's going to throw a chair. Right. <laughs> hey, whatever works for you. Um, you know, I was thinking about the, uh, the, the improv acting and I do have, to, I have realizing how powerful that was. And I do got to plug the organization It's called pan theater in Oakland. Um, so anyone who's in Oakland um, and really for anybody, try some improv acting. It's about the scariest thing you can do besides jumping out of the stratosphere. Right. <laughs> right. It's far less deadly than that. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, I've appreciated this immensely. I think it's been a great conversation. I appreciate all the things you've brought to the audience. I'd love to give you some time to kind of plug what you do and where people can find you. 
Yeah, thanks, Colton. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I love love the flow of it, and um, just discovered your podcast. And I think I think it's great. Um, so people can find out more about me just by googling my name because the last name is a pretty unique spelling. So Michael Seely, C W E L Y. Um, my therapy practices will come up. I uh, practice in California, Florida, and Wisconsin. Um, and then you'll see my, my coaching site as well, which is michaelseely.com. Also on Instagram, uh, Michael underline Seely. I do a lot of stuff on Instagram where I post a lot of uh, videos um, with a lot of skills and, and uh, suggestions there. So that's how you can find me. Awesome. Well, I hope people go check you out. Um, you said you had a podcast as well. I do. Yeah. It's a weekly podcast. Uh, I launched it this year during the Tour de France. And I, I did a challenge to do it every single day, which was, again, one of these things I didn't think I could do it, but I did it. So now it's weekly. It's simply called Michael Seeley's Sports Psychology Podcast. It's on all, all major platforms, just getting started. So Awesome. Well, I hope people yeah. go over. If they do check it out, remember to you know rate it on whatever platform you're on, because that helps the show grow. Um, doing it daily. Congratulations on accomplishing that because I recently switched to two a week and that is plenty of work for me. Yeah, I imagine so. I imagine so. I hope your momentum keeps going and, and your show keeps growing. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. Please take a brief moment to rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or Audible. It seriously helps so much. Over the last two months, I've slipped from number one in education on Podbean to just the other night being knocked out of the top three. That hurts, even though I knew it wouldn't be that way forever. The only way to help this show grow is to get new reviews and new listeners. You can do your part by telling other people that you enjoy the podcast. I'm always looking for new topics, guest ideas, and questions from the audience. To reach out to me, email dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or send a message to any of the show pages on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else you can find the show. That's all for now. I'll see you all Thursday for the next Personal Discovery episode. Bye bye <laughs>